Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the city of Lagos and beyond renewed by the gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Good morning, church. Our Bible reading for today is taken from the book of Ezra 7, 1 to 10. When I finish reading, I would end reading with, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond with, thanks be to God. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sarahiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitab, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zarahiah, the son of Uzai, the son of Bukai, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This, <laughs> this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decree and laws in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. We can draw near because of his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your mercy. Thank you so much, Lord, that we can come from different backgrounds, different places, different experiences, and have your mercy. So Lord, we pray now that as we look into the perfect law of liberty, your word given to us by the Holy Spirit, Lord, breathe life upon it. And Lord, let this time, oh God, be a recalibration for some. Let it be an eye-opening for some. But Lord, for all, let it be an encounter with you. In Jesus' name we pray. My Yoruba self <clears throat> feels like there should be a greeting for all the rain we've endured this past week. Ekojo. But it doesn't translate well in English, so I'll just say good morning. Um, good to, good to, good to, so what, what was that? Die rain. Okay. 
Well, good to see you all this morning. We have um, been looking at um, the book of Ezra. Actually, we were looking at the book of Ezra, then we took a pause to consider what God has um, to say to us about parenting. And that's not just those who have kids, but also those who are in spiritual mothering and fathering roles in the life of our community here. Or you have other people that are responsible for your life. Or even just to think about the way you were parented and then how you can then carry that legacy on or tweak that legacy going forward. And so we stopped to look at the intentional parenting over the last three weeks. And I'd encourage you, please go back and listen to it if you haven't. Um, and now we are resuming Ezra again. And if you haven't been with us, um, we're starting now from Ezra chapter 7. See, we had looked at chapters 1 to 6, and what we had really seen there, if you want to summarize everything that we've seen so far, you can summarize it with Ezra chapter 1 verse 1. It is this, that the people of God sinned against God, and so God said, you guys have, your cup is full, and so now I'm sending you out of the land that I had given you, and God sent them into the land of Babylon, and they lived in exile there under a number of kings. But eventually, God had also promised that he was going to bring them out. And so you see there, for anyone who is not a Christian here, you see that the way God does his discipline is not so much to drive us away from his presence, but actually to show us our need for him. And so God sends them out into the land of Babylon, but God also, with the sending out, also promises, I'm bringing you back in. And so in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, we see the word of God there from Jeremiah, the prophet, that said that God was going to eventually allow the people of Israel to come back in. And so Cyrus, the king of Babylon, makes a proclamation. He basically passes an act in the national parliament, except that he was both parliament, king, and judge, right? No separation of powers. And he sends the people of Israel back home. And so the people of Israel come back, and that's what we um, were considering, how they live their life um, in the new community that they had come into. And so I like the way a theologian named John Goldinger puts it. If you want to summarize what the book of Ezra really is about, he says chapters 1 to 6 is about the restoration of the temple. Chapters 7 to 10 that we're now going to begin to look at is about the restoration of the people. Because you see, God's purpose is not just to bring us out of the circumstances that we are in. It is to bring us into relationship with him. And so Ezra chapter 1 to 6 has really been focused on that. And Ezra 7 to 10 that we begin to look at focuses on how God restores his people. And if you're familiar with the Bible story or maybe just even thinking about your own life, if you wanted to restore people back to the place that they are meant to be, what would you use? Maybe you write a sign in the sky. Or maybe you use an animal, like God used with um, Balaam, and he spoke through a donkey to him, special effects. Or you use an angel, like he did with Samson's parents. In fact, that story is really nice, because the angel appears to the mother first, and then the mother says, wait, and then she goes and calls her husband, and then the husband comes. And so God could have used that, but of all the ways that God could have continued his mission that he's trying to accomplish with the people of Israel, he uses a human being. Weak, pitiable, broken people like you and I. I don't know if you've met any human beings lately. People that sweat. People that sleep. People that are tired. People that have issues. And God, this is the people that you choose to use. The psalmist ponders that reality. In fact, he's thinking about it so much that he says in Psalm 8, verses 3 to 4, he's considered all of God's grand design. And so he sort of, oh God, maybe you use something else. And so he says, when I've considered the heavens, the work of your hands, he says, what is man 
they are mindful of him. In other words, this, this thing, this person, is so insignificant in all your grand purposes and schemes. God, what is man? And yet, friends, it is people like you and I that God chooses to use. And can I just say to you here, if you're here this morning, that precisely because God delights in accomplishing his mission through human beings like you and I, you have an assignment. Your life is not just a story that is meant to be drifting through time. Your life is not just a hyphen between two dates. Your life is meant to be driving and accomplishing the mission of God in the different spaces and places that he has placed you. Whether you're a teenager preparing to write IGCSE, whether you're somebody who's just starting their career and preparing to write ACCA, or whether you're somebody who has already gotten to the top of your career and now striking deals, God has a plan for your life. You have an assignment. And so if we're going to be those people who will accomplish those things, those assignments that God has called us to, there are three things we see in this passage here that we have to remember. First, you are not enough. Secondly, you are not irrelevant. And third, you are not alone. Can we say that together? You are not enough. You are not irrelevant. And you are not alone. I love the energy this morning. Let's pray again. So, Lord, the psalmist says in Psalm 63, Lord, that he earnestly desires you. He earnestly thirsts for you. He says that you alone are the one who satisfies him. And so, Lord, we are praying that this morning be our satisfaction. Lord, some of us don't have enough longing. Some of us, our thirst level is so shallow. Lord, we ask that you deepen it. Let it not just be comfortable enough to take the cokes and fantas of this world, but Lord, let it be deep enough so that only real water can satisfy. Lord, let us hear a better sermon than the one that has been preached. In Jesus' name we pray. You are not enough. Verse 1 begins with this word. It says, after these things. And if you are new to the story of Ezra, the right question you are meant to ask is, after what things, right? And if you like, that, those three words are summarizing what has been going on through the story of Ezra because, like Pastor Femi showed us, that when, when, when the people of Israel came out of Babylon, it wasn't just a smooth sail. Yes, the king gave them permission to go and he provided the things that they needed, but it wasn't just like they started doing all the things that they needed to do. Actually, chapter 4 shows us that they were oppressed several times under different kings. They were oppressed under Cyrus. They were oppressed under Darius. They were oppressed under Xerxes. They were oppressed under this present king, Artaxerxes. And so even though they had been let out, they actually couldn't efficiently and effectively do all the things that God had called them to do. And maybe some of us are in that space of our lives where it feels like we are suffering setback upon setback upon setback. You're trying to take a step, but things have been prevented from happening. You're trying to accomplish a goal. Things are just happening and blocking you at every turn and at every corner. In fact, they blocked the people of God so much that even though they eventually built the temple like Toki showed us and Mujola showed us in chapter 3, it says in chapter 4 verse 12 that it wasn't just the building of the temple that they stopped. They also blocked the rebuilding of the walls. In other words, they attacked the religious infrastructure of society. They also attacked the economic and security infrastructure in the society. And so all these things had been happening. And it was at this point God then says, we are told in chapter 7, after these things. And can I just encourage somebody's heart here this morning, friends, that regardless of what you've been through, there is going to be an after these things. Amen. 
The promise of the Bible is that weeping may endure for a night. There may be prolonged trials. And some of you, it's like, God, I've been in this night season for 12 years. But friends, joy comes in the morning. And I pray that as many of us as are in need of joy, God will send joy. As many of us as are in need of a morning season, God will cause day to break. That the sun of glory will arise and bring healing in his wings upon you in the name of Jesus Christ. And so after these things, but then he says it was during the reign of Artaxerxes that Ezra, the son of Sariah. And if you're like me, you're like, oh, finally, we get to meet the person this book is about, right? Because, duh, this book is called Ezra. And we've been preaching this series for seven or so weeks now before we took a break, and we didn't hear anything about him. And finally, now we meet this guy, Ezra. But he shows up at a very weird spot. He shows up at the weird spot because, like I said, the first six chapters, there is no mention of him. He only begin, we only begin to see him in chapter 7, four chapters to the end. In other words, in the story about Ezra's life, Ezra only features in 40%. The other 60% is Ezra doesn't show up at all. But what is even weird about it is that, oh, I get it. Maybe he gave somebody to write the story. But no, actually, Ezra is the one writing the story. And he's like, though you are writing the autobiography of your life and you spend 600 pages talking about other people and then 400 pages talking about yourself, it doesn't make sense. Unless Ezra is actually telling us and the Holy Spirit wants us to see that the story of Ezra, the story of the people of God is not primarily about Ezra. It's about all the people who had been doing different things at different points to bring into fulfillment what Ezra needed to do at the time Ezra came on stage. If Ezra was in this room in 2023, speaking to you and I in our modern lingo, Ezra would say, guys, yes, the story is about me, but the story is not really about me. I am not enough. You see, sometimes um, there is no potent lie like the lie that has just enough truth in it to make it sound like it's true. And so people say these words, words that have you know, really gone around for the past couple of years in a bid to encourage people, in a bid to make people feel um, secure about themselves, in a bid to actually make people motivated to do the things that they need to do. People say, you are enough. And maybe some of us have even put in our status, right? I'm enough. But the truth is, you are not enough. You are not enough. You are a makeup of all the experiences, of all the decisions of different people down the years. You see, the story that God is writing through your life is not just about you and all the things you do. It's about all the other people that have helped you to the point where you're not able to do the things that you do. God's word, Ezra is showing us this morning, friends, that none of us is enough. None of us, like Paul said, is sufficient for these things. We don't have the ability in and of ourselves to become all that God has called us to be. We need others. And so when we were reading in chapter 1, and we're talking about um, Shezbazah, and we're talking about Zerubbabel, and we're talking about um, um, the prophets, and all those other people, all those people were doing the things that God had called them to do, not knowing that there was going to be a person called Ezra who would eventually come on the scene, but their actions were actually preparing the way for Ezra to be the kind of person and do the thing that God had called him to do. Friends, you're not enough. 
You need the people of God around you. You need the people that God has placed in your life to enable you to become the kind of person that God has called you to become. But this is not just true for our personal lives. This is also true for the mission of God because Ezra primarily here is about the mission of God. See, friends, there is not one church that is enough to bring about the purposes of God in a city, in a nation. Certainly not city church. And this is why Pastor Femi was talking about renew because if we are going to see the mission and vision of city church accomplished to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews the city of Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally, guess what? It cannot just be city church. It has to be several churches linking arms and trying to accomplish the mission of God together. City church is not the hope of Lagos. Jesus is the hope of Lagos. Your favorite pastor on on the podcast is not the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. All of us are just people who who are privileged to be supporting actors in the movie that God himself is director and main character in. But if I can go back to Ezra again, we see here that Ezra is primarily, verses 1 to 5, he's talking about his family line. And we see here his unique family identity. He says in verse 1 that he's the son of Sarai. And he goes down to list about 15 other names. And you see, this lineage that Ezra puts here, you can see more fully in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 4 to 16. But in 2 Kings 25 and 18, it tells us that Sarai, who is um, Ezra's ancestor, was the last high priest of the nation of Judah. So, Ezra comes from a line of godly people who had enabled him to become the kind of person that he has become. And these friends, on at least one level, means that our families of origin are vitally important for the kind of people that God actually has called us to become. See, we are living in an increasingly fractured society where family doesn't matter, connections don't matter. Oh, yes, I, you know, I don't care about all these different things. Dickens Femi Akinwari, one of our Dickens here in church, has told his life story a number of times to a couple of us, and there's one that I particularly resonate with, and I got his permission to share. And so his, um, his dad, keep it quiet, guys. His dad, my son is one of the two, so I can't. Don't mess up daddy's preaching. His dad, when his father was young, his father lost his father at the age of four. Okay, so track with me. Mr. Akinwari's father, who we shall call Mr. A, lost his father when he was four. And so Mr. A's dad, and so Mr. A is not able to go to school with his other siblings for about four years. They're out of school, they have to be doing different things. And so Mr. A, Mr. A's uncle, hears about this. My nephew and his siblings have not been able to go to school. What can I do, what can I do, what can I do? And so he becomes a kinsman redeemer. Hint, hint, Ruth. He becomes a kinsman redeemer and marries Mr. A's mom, okay? So Mr. A's uncle marries Mr. A's mom. And so Mr. A's uncle becomes responsible for the education of Mr. A and all his siblings. Now, Mr. A is able to make something of his life and eventually grows up and he gives birth to Dikinfemi and his siblings and they're able to make something of their lives. And Dikinfemi says this, he says, if that man had not done that, my father would most likely have become a hunter in Modakeke. And then I said to him, and you most likely will have become a hunter in Modakeke as well. <laughs> he will have come back home in the evenings and be saying to Dr. Enu, Dia, <laughs> do you know the boost meat I caught today? 
But of course, he wouldn't have been even able to, he wouldn't have even seen Dr. Etienne right? He wouldn't have been able to marry his wife. And yet, most likely not. I'm just saying, most likely not. The point, though, is that he's able to become the kind of person he is today because one of his ancestors took a certain kind of decision. But you see, it's not just in terms of economics as well. It's also in terms of spirituality also. And, and parents, if I can just piggyback on the back of the, um, of the Just Concluded series, we have a unique responsibility for this. To cast a vision for our children that transcends generations. To say that you are connected to something, to something, to something that is bigger than you. Yeah. On my mother's side of the family, um, there are seven of them. So my mom has six siblings. So there are seven of them. And this is very unique. Um, all of them are Christians. All of them working with Jesus. I'm the fourth generation. Four generations have been Christians, serious Christians, and church-believing Christians for the past God knows how many years. And why is that? It is because there was a certain man in their family line called Salami, Salami Olajipo, in Ilupeju, from Ilupeju, if you've never heard about Ilupeju, I can assure you. From Ilupeju in Kwara State, it's a very, very small town. Kwara people, many Kwara people have never heard of Ilupeju. But he becomes a Christian, um, and, and he becomes a Christian, and they, he would take my grandfather, so that's my mom's dad, as a child, he would take him as, um, this was in the 30s, and, and the late 20s, they'll be walking several miles to attend the church, out of their town. And so they would go several miles to attend the church. And this happened from about 19, my uncle tells me, from about 1938, at least with my grandfather, from about 1938 to about 1940. They would walk several miles to attend the church. Why? Because there was lots of, Islam had already made penetration into choir states, and, and it was, you know, it was really ferocious at the time. But then he decides, I think God blesses him, but then he decides, no, let's bring the Baptist church into our town. And so he donates his plot of land, and they build this building, which is now decrepit. But up here he says, Ladipo something Baptist Church, founded 1942. They build that building, and they are able to start a church in the, in the family, and people begin to get saved, and people get to know Jesus. And somehow, through the family line, they have decided, in fact, my grandfather made a pledge, and so his uncle made a pledge to him. By the way, that uncle led my grandfather's uncle, my grandfather's father, which was his elder brother, to Jesus. He led his younger brother to Jesus, and so all of his siblings, his, his brothers became Christians. He passed that faith to my grandfather. My grandfather passed that faith to my mom and her siblings, and my grandfather said the family responsibility is to make sure that this church keeps surviving and this church keeps thriving. And so my uncle basically now is, fund, is, is funding that church. It's a city where there are like 200 people, maybe 300 people, but there is a gospel witness because somebody in 1930-something decided and said, no, I'm going to carry this on through my family line. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And four generations after, we are able to say, no, we believe in Jesus because Salami Oladipo in 1942 decided to donate his own piece of land to start a church in the village. My point, parents, is that we must be the kind of people who carry that legacy forward and say, by God's grace, my children and their children and their children are going to be people who walk with Jesus all the days of their lives. Or maybe some of you are here and you're saying, Emmanuel, <laughs> yeah. 
I wish you knew my parents. I wish you knew my dad because my dad was given to alcohol and to drinking and embezzlement and he messed up his life. And I will say, well, I'm sorry to hear that, but don't you see, friends, that even that experience is not wasted. That some of us know, in theory, that alcohol is bad for you. You know in practice because you've seen it and what it has done to people's lives. But on top of that, God then brings you into the family of Jesus. He gives you father, mother, brother, sister. And he says, no, that, that your family line doesn't ultimately define you. You are defined by the reality of something else that has happened. Do you see? That even our family lines physically, even our family's lines and all the errors that they've made ultimately have nothing upon us except the blood of Jesus that fully and totally determines our trajectory. You're not enough, friends. If you're going to accomplish all that God has called you to be, it must be something that outlasts you, but it must be something that also comes down from God and how he has worked through your generations. You're not enough. But you might be hearing that you're saying, oh, Emmanuel, yeah, you're not enough. Okay, so it doesn't matter what I do. (laughs) But actually, the passage says the opposite. You're not enough, but you're also not irrelevant. You see, we don't believe in a faith. We don't believe in a God where God does everything and then we don't have any parts to play. Actually, Ezra's story shows us the direct opposite, that we both, we are not enough, but yet we have a story and a part to play in the story, rather, that God is accomplishing. So we see three quick things, I'll just briefly mention them, that show us that we're not irrelevant. You are not irrelevant because you have unique experiences. And so verse 6 says this, begins with these words. It says, this Ezra came up from Babylon. This Ezra came up from Babylon. Which Ezra? This Ezra that has, that we've just finished tracing his family line. That has just given us 16 high, um, high priests of the nation of Israel. This Ezra is the one that came up from Babylon. In other words, Ezra was somebody who was authentically Jewish. There was no way you could be a priest. There was no way you could come from, um, um, become a priest in the house of God, rather, without coming from the line of Aaron. In other words, Ezra was somebody who was steeped in Jewish tradition. He knew Jewish custom. He knew the Jewish way of life. He was very Jewish. But this Ezra came up from where? Not from Jerusalem, but from Babylon. In fact, at this point in the story, and for those of us who like a little bit of history, at this point in the story, this is 80 years after the first set of people have left Babylon. So, in other words, for some reason, when the first set of people left from Babylon, his parents decided, no, we want to enjoy the abroad. <laughs> We're not coming back home yet. And so Ezra becomes a dual citizen of Canada and Nigeria. No, he becomes... <laughs> He becomes a dual citizen of, of Babylon and Jerusalem. He is able to know both the Jewish way of life, but he knows very much the Babylonian way of life. In fact, we are told in verse 5 that he's able to ask the king for, for, uh, to make requests of the king. So, in other words, Ezra was somebody who was very acquainted, not just with Babylon in general, but he was also plugged into the, the system of doing things in Babylon. Ezra had unique experiences that made sure that he was the kind of person that was needed for this particular project in time. Do you see what I'm saying, friends? That you have unique experiences that God has given you that has made sure that you are set up to be the right kind of person for the task and assignment that God has committed into your hands. Some of you, 
Just like, just take it. Like you, you, you didn't go through ASU strike. You don't know what it's like for, to not um, have um, NEPA. You don't know what it's like to go and fetch water from a well. Just accept, right? No need to be trying to tone down your British accent or your American accent. Just take it with your full chest. But there are some others of us that we keep saying, oh, God, I wish I schooled in there, bro. I wish I, you know, I wish I had this experience. I wish I knew this person. But you, do you see, friends, that all the unique experiences that you have, God has given them to you because that is what you need to become the kind of person and serve in the role and space and place that God has called you to. All your experiences are not wasted. All your experiences are used by sovereign God to accomplish the kind of things that he has called you to. Your heartbreak, your broken marriage, your good marriage, your visa refusal, your visa granting, your family of origin, your abuse, your birthdays, your answered prayers, your unanswered prayers, your height, your complexion, your health issues, your friendships, your mistakes, your accomplishments. All of those things are paintbrushes in the hand of the sovereign God to accomplish and paint the story of your life the way he wants to. Accept those unique experiences that you have. Embrace them. Don't try to be somebody else. As has often been said, you were born an original. Don't die a cheap copy because you can only be a copy of something else. You can only be something else if you are not going to be all that God has called you to be. If I can press on this a little bit, let me just double click on it. In the story of the Bible, in the New Testament church, there were two people who were pillars of the church. And so you could say that they were similar, but you couldn't find two people who were more unalike. Paul and Peter. Peter is the guy who was a fisherman, who probably wasn't able to string together a lot of good, grammatically correct sentences. And yet God used him to preach the gospel to thousands. And whenever Peter was preaching to Jewish audiences, thousands of people came to Jesus Christ. But Paul, on the other hand, is the sophisticated guy who went to a prestigious school called the School of Gamaliel. He's the one who is able to write in very sophisticated Greek. He's the one who is able to think with the philosophers of his day. And whenever Paul tried to preach to Jewish audiences, if you read the book of Acts, he always got stoned and always got chased out. But he always had results with non-Jewish audiences. And God used those two people to accomplish the mission of God in the New Testament church. If Peter tried to become like Paul, he would have failed. In fact, he says in his letter in, in 2 Peter, he says that some of the things Paul writes, they are so hard to understand. God had fitted them for two very different purposes, friends, and yet God used them. You don't need to be like somebody else to carry out the mission and task that God has given you. You have unique experiences. Embrace them. Embrace them. But you also have a unique role. You have a unique role, and so you have to steward it. You see, in verse 7, we are told that it wasn't just Ezra that came out of, the, of, the, of, of, of Babylon alone, walking down the highways and, you know, carrying his backpack, and he was cruising and hitchhiking between Babylon and Jerusalem. No, no, there were other people that came with Ezra as well. He says that there were priests, there were Levites, there were musicians, there were gatekeepers, there were temple servants. There were all kinds of people that came with Ezra. And it was, and it's as though the narrator wants us to see that the destinies of these people were dependent on Ezra coming out of Babylon. That there was no way these people would have been able to come out of Babylon as well if Ezra hadn't come out of Babylon. And do you see, friends, it is that our lives are not just our own lives. Our lives are 
connected to the people around us. And many of us, the destinies of others are tied to what we do today. Destiny of others are tied to what we do today. Do you think that if Esau knew that there was going to be a time when people would say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would have eaten the pot of stew? But somehow he vanished from his side because he never thought that there was a connection between him and the other people that God, had, God was going to bring through him. And so maybe we'll have been saying God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But Esau actually didn't see it. And so he sold his birthright away. And so now we're saying God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you see, friends, you are tied to the destiny of others. And what you do today affects many other people. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to tell you a biblical reality. There's a song by Bethel Music that I like so much. It's an old song. But initially, I was a bit ruffled because the song is titled For the Sake of the World. And the chorus goes something like this. For the sake of the world, Lord, let your fire burn in me. Light a flame in my soul for every eye to see. For the sake of the world, let your fire burn in me. And my theologically informed self will say, no, it's not for the sake, it's not for the sake of the world. It is, it is for the sake of Jesus. It's for the name of Jesus, for the praise of Jesus. But actually, I eventually got to see that, no, no, no. It is for the praise of Jesus, but that there are other people whose destinies are linked to me today. What I do with my life, what, I, what decisions I take, and the things I do is vitally important. And you see that even in the story of the Bible itself, in Hebrews, it says that Jesus is able to be the one who saves us. Why? Because Jesus has gone that same path as well. In other words, our salvation is not just something that Jesus does for us and bolts away, but it's also a pattern in that the kind of life we live affects others. And so, as Jesus lived his life and affected other people, that is the same way you are meant to live your life in such a way that it affects other people. You're not irrelevant because you have a unique role and you must steward it. But lastly, you're not irrelevant because you have unique responsibilities. You're not irrelevant because you have unique responsibilities. And so we see here in verses 9 to 10, it tells us that it was on the first day of the month that Ezra set out. He began his journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. Ezra could have said, God has made a promise. This journey, God is just going to fulfill it. God is just going to transport us with Philip Express from Babylon all the way to Jerusalem will just appear and disappear, right? My African magic brain is coming to mind now. All the Yoruba incantations, but let's, let's put that aside. And so he could have said, or something. He could have said, I eventually said, he could have, I couldn't resist, I couldn't resist. He could have just done that. But no, he actually set out and took the journey. In other words, he learned God's world. He planned for the trip. In fact, theologians tell us that the distance between Babylon and Jerusalem is about a thousand miles. Okay, so that's like walking from Lagos to Meduguri and a little bit more. And so Ezra knew if you are taking these many thousands of people along with you, that is not going to be a fast trip. That is not going to be an easy trip. And so we have to strategize for this journey. And so Ezra planned for the journey. He learned God's world. But he didn't just learn God's word, he learned God's word. And so in verse 10, he says that Ezra was the kind of person who had devoted himself to the study of the word of God. In other words, when he says devoted there in the Greek, it means someone that is quick. And so it's almost like Ezra, what is in John chapter 3 verse 16? What is in James chapter 5 verse this? What is in, and Ezra is able to say it on the spot. 
Ezra was quick, he was skilled, he was apt in the word of God. He learned the word of God, he learned the word of God. And friends, if we're going to be the kind of people that accomplish our unique responsibilities, the way Ezra also did, because we're not relevant, we have to learn the word of God, we have to learn the word of God. Some of us are praying for advancement in our careers, we're praying for advancement in our businesses, and, and we haven't really thought about how to write a business plan well. We haven't thought about the, 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 the courses and the different things that we're meant to do. Some of us don't have good interpersonal skills. Ezra was the kind of person who learned the world of God well. He knew that he needed to make a request of the king. He knew that he needed to speak to the king a certain way to be able to get the things that he was going to get from the king. Are you getting what I'm saying? Learn the world of God because God has put principles in place that guard and guide the way his world is meant to be. But Ezra also knew that it's not just enough to learn the word of God. You must learn the word of God. And so Ezra soaked himself, steeped himself in the word of God. And he was allowing that word of God to shape his direction and shape his decisions, friends. You have unique responsibilities. Be equipped for them. You're not enough, but you're also not irrelevant. And you're not irrelevant because you have unique experiences. Embrace them. You're not irrelevant because you have unique roles. Steward them. You're not irrelevant because you have unique responsibilities. Be equipped for them. But if this is all we take from the story of Ezra, we are missing something because there is a phrase that keeps recurring through the book of Ezra. And Ezra wants us to see, yes, you are not enough. Yes, you are not irrelevant, but actually you are not alone. And so we see those words repeated in verses 6 and 9. It's these words, this phrase. It says, For the gracious hand of the Lord was upon him. For the good hand of the Lord was upon him. For the gracious hand of the Lord was upon him. For the good hand of the Lord was upon him. And it's as though Ezra wants us to see, yes, guys, I studied. Yes, I knew the king. Yes, I did the right thing. Yes, I planned for the trip. Yes, I come from the line of these people. I did all these things. But actually, what made it possible was the gracious hand of the Lord upon me. In other words, the presence of God was so real to Ezra that it was as though God was with him. God's hand was waiting upon his head, heavy upon him, and he was able to do all the things that he was able to do. You see, some of us are so dialed in to the frequencies around us. We are so dialed into the calls and all the noises from media, from the economics, from, from different projections and all the different things that we have heard about life in Lagos and how things are going to be hard and how the, the exchange rate is this way and all of this. And we are so conscious of all of those things that we are not conscious of the God that is actually superintending all of those things. Ezra is saying that it doesn't matter that it was or during the reign of King Artaxerxes. It doesn't matter that I have all this experience. It doesn't matter that this is the reality and things are hard and difficult. Ezra says, no, no. What ultimately matters is that the gracious hand of God was upon me. And friends, if you are going to accomplish the mission and task that God has called you to in the different spaces and places that he has placed you, you have to depend on the gracious hand of God. And so how do we get this gracious hand of God? Because some of us, as I, I'm talking, as I mentioned, learn the world of God. You're already thinking, yeah, Coursera, what are those courses I gave up on? What were those things I did? Um, yeah, memory verse. I need to start learning memory verse. I need to, what devotional? Oh, yeah, GC, and you check, check, check. But you see, if all you're thinking about is what you can do, you're missing the point. Because we cannot earn the gracious hand of God. 
The gracious hand of God is something that cannot be coerced or forced. The gracious hand of God is something that can only be given. And so how do we get it? Verse 9 tells us the secret. It says, It was on the first day of the first month that Ezra set out with his camp from Jerusalem. That's the answer. End of sermon. Shall we pray? No. First day of the first month. They're like, hey, why is this significant? Well, it's significant because if you know the Jewish story well, we've, we've, we've seen that somewhere else. In Exodus chapter 12, just like Ezra and the people of Israel coming out of Babylon, coming out of exile in Babylon, the people of God at the time were in exile in the land of Egypt. They had been kept there in slavery for hundreds of years. And God was about to bring them out. And how was God going to bring them out? God was going to bring them out by the hand of a man called Moses. But how was Moses going to be able to accomplish that? God says this is in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. He says, he speaks to them. He says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And then in verse 6, it says, You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Do you see what's happening there? God says, yes, I'm going to bring you guys out. I'm going to take you out. I'm going to take you into the land that I have for you. But actually, how does this deliverance take place? This deliverance doesn't take place on the, hand, on the back of good strategies. This deliverance doesn't take place on the hand of good connections. This deliverance takes place because of the gracious hand of, the, of God through a lamb that was slaughtered for, people, for the people of God to accomplish the thing that God had called them to accomplish. And so Ezra basically says that the only way we can get our friends, the only way we can express the good hand of the Lord is by trusting in the lamb that has been slaughtered for us. And because of that lamb, friends, they were able to experience the gracious hand of the Lord as they came out of exile from Babylon. And can I tell you, friends, that just like Ezra and the people of Israel, just like Moses and the people of Israel, the only way, the only way we can express the gracious hand of the Lord as we go around the task and assignments that he has called us to is by trusting in the lamb that has been slaughtered for us. You see, on the cross, Jesus is not just like Ezra. Jesus is the lamb, like the lamb in the Old Testament that was slaughtered, but Jesus does one better than Ezra. Ezra doesn't die for the people so they can advance. Jesus becomes the one who dies for them as the lamb, but also as the deliverer who takes them out of bondage. You see, friends, when you trust in Jesus, when you trust in the gospel, when you trust in the good news, that is exactly what God does for you. God redeems your past, but he also takes you into the future that he has for you because of Jesus who has gone ahead. But it gets even better. It gets even better. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 to 20 tells us that in the same way that that the people of Israel were redeemed and ransomed and taken out of bondage. It says that in the same way God has redeemed us from the empty way of life that has been handed down to us and he has, with the precious blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God who is spotless and without defect, he has redeemed us. Friends, you have a new identity. 
You're not defined by what you have done. You're not defined by what you have been through. You're not defined by what you have failed to do. You're ultimately defined by who you belong to and what he's taking you into. Oh, but it gets better. It gets better because in Ezra chapter 7 verse 7, we are told that all these different people, these different classes of people come out, but it says that the people of Israel came out. And to you and I in 2023, we're like, oh, yes, of course, the people of Israel came out. But actually, to the early readers, they'd be like, no, there's a problem here. There's a problem here because, if you just take it down, it be, there's a problem here because there is no people of Israel. Ezra chapter 1 verse 5 says that it was only the tribe of Judah and Benjamin that were taken into exile and that came out of exile. In other words, the people of God had been scattered and dissipated. The people of God no longer existed. The people of God were not to be reckoned with. And somehow, Ezra, in writing Ezra chapter 7, says, no, no, yes, there are two tribes. Yes, everybody is not here. Yes, it is not complete. Yet it's not as big as what Moses did. But guess what? This is still the people of God. And friends, God wants us to see that you're not defined ultimately by the scale of what you're able to accomplish. You're not defined by the scale of what you're able to do. You are defined ultimately because you belong to the Lord Jesus. And when you belong to Jesus, the size of your accomplishment is superseded by what Jesus has already accomplished. And so your accomplishments have the greatest significance ever because somebody else died in your stead and has brought you in. You're part of the people of God. You're part of the people of God. You're not alone, friends. We have one who has walked the path with us. You have one who has stood in our stead. You have one who has brought us out. And in bringing us out, he's taking us into what, we ha- what he has for us. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast, and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City